You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. And so, some say this message of grace, it's too dangerous. And that's why the law is often overemphasized rather than the gospel. One man said, wherever the gospel is rightly preached, there will always be these objections. Too much grace, oh, it'll lead to too much sin. But here's the truth about the glorious gospel. The gospel doesn't provoke us to sin. The gospel provokes us to obey. His kindness and his love leads us to repentance. Verse 2, the answer to that question. Should we sin so that grace may abound? The answer is an emphatic Certainly not. How shall we who've died to sin live any longer in it? I like this, certainly not, exclamation point. Paul strongly objecting to the notion that we could continue on sinning so that grace could superabound to our account. Certainly not. Perish the thought or away with the notion. And Paul introduces his case against this method of thinking. By pointing out that those who have tamed the righteousness of God through faith are actually dead to sin. And so, our death to sin in Christ actually changes our relationship to sin. As Romans chapter 3 verse 31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish it. And so this message of salvation by grace through faith, it actually establishes, it fulfills the law of Moses because our righteousness comes not through our own works, but through the finished work of Jesus who paid it all in his righteousness. Our death to sin, it changes our relationship to sin. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? It's an important principle and it's really elementary that we who are born again when we believed in Jesus for our salvation, our relationship with sin is permanently changed. We've died to sin. Therefore, we can no longer live in it. We simply can't live any longer in it because it's dead. The process of death changing things is throughout the scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you read about, you know, man, a a person can uh, stay married to her husband, but if he dies, that marriage is severed. The marriage is over. Death ended that. In the same level, you know, death in Christ, our old man dying, severs our relationship with sin. It's no longer the same. At this point, Paul has a lot to explain about what exactly he means when he says died to sin, but the general point is clear. Christians, those that are in Christ, have died to sin in Christ, and therefore they no longer can live in it. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 says that before we were dead in sin, but now we're dead to sin. And so what does this mean, being dead to sin? few different views. First of all, by the way, the first two are wrong. 
The third view is scriptural. First of all, to be dead to sin means that you are completely done with sin. You'll never sin again. And so there's a lot of churches that preach that if you're in Christ, you're sinless now and you'll never sin again. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. That teaching that now in this life, there's no more influence of sin in our life. Or there's no more love of sin in our life sometimes. It's sometimes called the perfectionist view. And so if you ever sin, it shows that you're not saved. And so there's this constant repeating, getting saved, getting saved, getting saved over and over and over again. Because throughout the week, of course, you've sinned. You've lied. You've stolen. You've cheated on something. You've lusted in your heart. You've had passions outside of Christ. You've committed idolatry. So you come back to church and you get saved again this week. No, I really, really mean it this time. Believe in Jesus. I'm confessing in my heart that Jesus is my Lord. And then, oh, darn, I you know, ran a red light you know, or something. I said, oh, I got to go back and get saved again. And this perfectionist view always ends up in us either condemning ourselves and beating ourselves up or walking in a self-righteous mentality. If anybody believes in the perfectionist view, I'd like to meet you so I can immediately show you you're wrong. And I'll just get you really mad or something so that I can be like, see, you're not saved, you know. I wouldn't be very nice. And I'd lose my salvation by doing that, so I'm not going to do that. Also, if that's the case, if the moment you're saved you never sin again, then why does the New Testament deal with repeatedly, um, you know, how to encourage each other in sanctification and how to deal with sin via church discipline, bearing one another's burden, confronting one another in sin, and, you know, restoring a believer uh, when they do fall into sin. You know, it's obvious in the New Testament that, uh, you know, that someone who's a Christian still sins. It just happens. So the perfectionist view or the idea that you're completely done with sin the moment you get saved isn't what Paul means here, that we, when we've died to sin. Uh, the other idea is that you ought to be dead, or that you are dying. But the language that Paul uses here is says that you actually are dead to sin. Not you ought to be dead, you are dead to sin in Christ. It's, it's, it's a past act, and it's a fact that happened at the death of Jesus, and it's imputed to us through faith the moment we Believe And so scriptural support, uh, support comes to the idea that when Paul says that we've died, it means I have died. It means we have died to sin. When we follow in the heels of chapter 5, that we were in Adam and death was reigning over us and sin was reigning over us, that death was our ruler and our master And then through the gospel, we believed we were brought forth from death uh, to the dominion of grace and the dominion of righteousness. And so when Paul says that we died, he's saying that we died to the reign of death and the ruling of sin over our lives. That no longer has dominion over us. That no longer has power over us. That no longer controls us. And so Paul combats sin here by emphasizing, and we're going to read it a lot today in verses 1 through 14, emphasizing the reign of grace and the union with Christ. Theologians speak of these three tenses of salvation. 
uh, that we've been saved, that we're being saved, and that we shall be saved. The been saved is the justification. The being saved is the sanctification. And they're distinct, but you can't separate them. The larger Westminster Catechism says it this way. There's always a question followed by an answer. Question, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Answer, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former, sin is pardoned. In the latter, it is subdued. Okay, so in justification, our sins are pardoned. And now as we're walking in this state of sanctification, sin is subdued in our life. No longer is it the ruler and the reigner and the master of our life. And so, can a believer live in sin and still be a believer? We have to define the term living in sin. It speaks of the fundamental lifestyle of the person is that of sin. Living in sin is remaining in sin. The characteristic of your life is sin. And the scriptures teach us plainly that no one who is living under the reign and the authority and the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit can continue on remaining in sin. And 1 John hammers this home to us. And yet, at the same time, the scriptures show us that even a believer can live in a way that's inconsistent to who we are in Christ for a season. There's this season where we struggle and the Holy Spirit's working things out in us, showing us our sin. And then we come and we confess our sin and we repent of our sin. And God is glorified in the whole process of acknowledging sin, recognizing sin, confessing sin, repenting of sin, and obedience to Christ. So a Christian cannot continue on blatantly in a lifestyle that is marked with the characteristic of sin. The Holy Spirit will always lead them to the place of repentance. And the Bible has all kinds of instruction on how to deal with sin. To walk in the power of the Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5. To arm ourselves with the scriptures that both show us our sin and are the sword of the Spirit that help us combat sin. As Psalm 119 tells us, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then also the scriptures show us that brothers and sisters come alongside of us and they show us our blind spots. And they lead us through the process of of, um, reconciliation towards towards, uh, Christ. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, God says to Cain that sin lies crouching at your door and its desire is to rule over you. 
Sin is doing, you know, it, it's, it's that wanting to be your master. And outside of Jesus, if you're coming here today and you're not in Christ, you're in a tough place because you are a slave to sin. You'll never have victory over those things. You'll never have pardon. You'll never have innocence over those things outside of Christ. You're a slave to sin. It is your master and you are in bondage. Its desire is to totally rule over you. But in Christ, Romans 6 shows us, we're not slaves to sin any longer, but we're slaves to righteousness. Let's go ahead and just jump on over to verse 3. So we're, we're dead to sin. No longer is it ruling over us. And verse 3 says, Do you not know that as many as of, of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So verse 3 begins with this phrase, Don't you know? Do you not know? Anybody who understands the gospel should understand the concept that verse 3 is giving to us. This baptism into Christ Jesus is being baptized into his death. It's, it's the gospel. It's not the ABC. It's the A to Z in our Christian faith. So what is being baptized in Christ Jesus? The ancient Greek word for baptized means to immerse or overwhelm with something. And the Bible uses it in a lot of different ways, several different ways. When a person is baptized with water, they are immersed and completely covered over with water. When a person is baptized with the Holy Spirit, they are completely immersed or covered over with the Holy Spirit. When a person is baptized with suffering, they are completely immersed with suffering. And so here we see a person is being baptized in Christ Jesus, completely immersed or covered over in Christ Jesus. And so when a person is immersed into Christ Jesus, they are actually being immersed into his death. A lot of people, when they read Romans chapter 6, think that Paul is doing a teaching on baptism here. But he's not teaching on baptism. He's using baptism to make a point. Baptism. It's symbolic of our union with Christ. You know, as we believe in the gospel, his past becomes our past. His future becomes our future. His life becomes our life. And so as we stand in the waters of baptism, we say, I am united with Christ at this moment. His death is my death. And we go down into the waters of baptism, symbolizing our old man dying. But just as Jesus didn't stay dead, neither do we stay dead in the water. And we would stay dead if we stayed under the water in baptism. But we come up out of the water and we say, yes, his life is also my life. And so Paul, using an outward symbol of our inward conversion, isn't just trying to do a lesson on baptism, showing us how we've been buried with Christ, but rather that we've been buried with Christ. Get this. If you are in Christ today, you have been buried with Christ. The moment you believed, you were buried with Christ. His life became your life. His death became your death. 
And his future became your future. His burial and his resurrection became your burial and your resurrection. In Christ, you're no longer in Adam that we read of at the end of chapter 5 of Romans. But we're now transferred to the kingdom of his life, walking in his kingdom, burying ourselves in the gospel. Verse 4 says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So the believer's water baptism, or being baptized into Christ, is a dramatization or an acting out of the believer's immersion or identification in Jesus' death and resurrection. As F.F. Bruce says, from this and other references to baptism in Paul's writings, it's plain he did not regard baptism as an optional extra in the Christian life. Baptism's important if you haven't been baptized. It's kind of that first just sign of obedience that, Lord, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what you say. And you say, get baptized. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to show the world that I'm united with you. This death to sin principle illustrated in baptism. But not just his death, his resurrection. And just as he was resurrected, so we will walk in newness of life. You guys want to know your new position in Christ? It's not a slave to sin anymore. Now you walk in newness of life. We all like new stuff, right? Christmas time was just over. Some of you got some new stuff, you know. Don't you love getting something new and maybe something leather or something and you pull it out of the box and man, you just smell it. It just smells so good. It fits so good. It feels so good. Well, so too, our new life in Jesus, man, it is glorious. It is precious. It's something that he's won for us and provided for us. Fresh and new in quality. Paul's point is clear here. here, That something dramatic and life-changing happened in the life of the believer. You can't die and rise again without it completely changing your life. And so we begin now, verses 5, and and we're not going to get this far today, but clear up through verse 23. These verses show us how to translate our identification with Jesus into our practical Christian living. Some how-tos for us. And they're summed up in three different ways, and we're only going to get to two of them today. First of all, to know. As first uh, uh, five begins, to know and to apprehend the fact. Verse five says, if we've been united together in the likeness of his resurrection, surely we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. The likeness of his death and the likeness of his resurrection. There's a unity in that, in Christ. A clear, close union. You might underline with your pen that phrase, united together. It's exactly, as Morris says, exactly expresses the process by which a graft becomes united with the life of a tree. The union is of the closest sort 
and the life from Christ flows through him. We're united to his death. We're united to his resurrection. As Romans chapter 9 tells us, we've been grafted in. I remember my mom, got, uh, she gave uh, bone marrow to her sister who had leukemia. And uh, as a present for doing that, my uncle got my mom this special, what they call a fruit salad tree. And they take a tree and they graft into it all sorts of different fruits so that it grows all the fruits you would need for your fruit salad. Pretty practical, right? And I always loved that because just to think of that grafting process, you know, where they took a branch from another tree and they kind of seared it onto this uh, new tree. And as time went on, that, that union just became inseparable. The tree was one and the same. So too in Christ, we are united in the likeness of his death, like a tree being grafted. We're also united in the likeness of his resurrection. Like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Our creation and all of our body groans and labors together for that day that we'll be in glory with the Lord, totally perfect and totally sanctified. And until that day, God is doing this process in us of the death to sin principle. It's done. And now this walking in this newness of life that he's already done for us by rising from the dead. You know, so often we get focused on one or the other. We we either you know, get focused on the uniting in his death and we forget that there's new awesome life in that. Or we think of just this glory that awaits us and we forget, yeah, we've died to sin too. There's been a mortification of our flesh. And certainly, as verse 5 ends, we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a certain thing. Verse 6 knowing this, that our old man was crucified, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Our old man was crucified. And, and the ESV says our old self, because old man makes us think of our dad. You know, our, our dad was crucified with Jesus. What? Uh, you know, our old self, our old sinful person that was from that inherent nature of Adam. The old man, as Colossians 3 puts it, was crucified with Christ through faith. Has your old man been crucified with Christ yet? Have you put your faith in Jesus in such a way that the old, insert your name, the old Mary or the old Betty or the old George or whatever your name might be, that old man was crucified with Jesus on the cross? Has that happened yet? That that sinful nature you inherited from Adam was pinned to the tree with Jesus through faith. This crucifixion that the verse 6 shows us, it speaks of a death. There's a unity together in the likeness of his death so that the body of sin might be done away with. Trying to memorize this chapter this week and getting to verse 6, man, verses 6 and 7 just burned in my heart. I love this phrase, done away with. 
that this body of sin, the old man, the old woman, could actually be done away with or brought to nothing, could be rendered powerless or ineffective or inoperative. The old Rory, weak, ineffective against the new life that Christ has given. The New Living Translation translates this verse, Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 says that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Remember that day that you got saved? Remember that day you put your trust in Jesus? You received that free gift of salvation and atonement for your sins? That was the day that your flesh was crucified with his passions and his desires. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, verse 6 says. We need a little clarification on our idea, our idea of slavery, because here in America, we kind of go back to, you know, the uh, American slave trade, where people were bought or sold into slavery, and children were born into slavery. And yes, of course, that's a form of slavery, but first century slavery was actually an optional thing, if you can figure that. It was actually something that you got to choose if you wanted to be a slave or not. You know, uh, people would, uh, in, in that time, go bankrupt. And bankrupt and, and getting a whole bunch of debt meant that you went and worked for that person you were indebted to until you paid it off. And so slavery was the uh, first century form of the credit card today, you know. And most of us, yeah, that totally makes sense, right? But people could willingly opt into slavery. Yes, I want to be your slave. I'm going to work this thing off. In the same way, our slavery to sin, letting it be our taskmaster over us, was a willing thing. We chose to rebel against God. We chose to de-God God. We chose to worship the created thing rather than the creator who's uh, eternally blessed. And so we all have masters. We all have uh, things that we're enslaved to apart from Christ. Many masters all worshiping something. And the way that you can figure out what your master is, is try to imagine your life without it. And if you just can't function, then you know that that's the master of your life. That's your idol. That's the sin that you are enslaved to. But in Christ, Paul's driving home the point, we are free from the reign and the dominion of the slave master of sin. And verse 7 says, In that death, he who has died has been freed from sin. When a slave dies, they're no longer a slave. When we die, we're no longer slaves to sin. The Bible Knowledge Commentary states this truth like this, Sin no longer has the right to force its mastery and control on the believer. For he has died with Christ. And so the glorious message of Romans chapter 6 is that we are no longer slaves to sin. No longer. 
You know, in America, uh, during the Civil War era and the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, uh, after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation took place, uh, a man was riding through the country when he noticed a black uh, worker harvesting cotton on a certain plantation. And he stopped his horse and he asked this laborer, what are you doing still working as a slave on this plantation? Don't you know that all black slaves have been freed Uh, because of the Emancipation Proclamation. And this guy that's out there working, you know, chopping wood or whatever, uh, he just kept swinging his axe and just kept working. And he just said, don't know nothing about no Emancipation Proclamation. And he just kept working. And the writer rode off. And so many Christians are living in that same mentality. We've been freed in Christ. Jesus' death has become our emancipation proclamation. No longer are we slaves of sin. And so as Christians, we tell each other, don't you know you're not a slave of sin anymore? Don't know nothing about no emancipation proclamation. It's still my master. It's not your master anymore. If you're united in the likeness of his death, then you're united in the likeness of his resurrected resurrection life and power this is god's emancipation proclamation to us jesus is our pattern here in verses 8 through 10 and paul drives home the resurrection where our hope is found now we if we died with christ we believe that we shall also live with him verse 9 knowing that christ having been raised from the dead dies no more death no longer has dominion over him for the death that he died he died to sin once for all but the life that he lives he lives to god jesus died a death a death to sin once for all now what does that mean jesus dying a death to sin well philippians 2 tells us that jesus subjected himself to weakness and to death, all things that are the result of sin. Therefore, he uh, <clears throat> excuse me, subjected himself <clears throat> to sin willingly, and yet he never sinned. So there's a subjection, and yet there's his purity of life that he never sinned in that subjection. Not only did he subject himself to die, not sinning, but he also resurrected from the dead and will never die again. You know, all of the healings that we read about in the scripture are just a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection. Even Lazarus being raised from the dead, as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was all great, right? But what happened 30, 40, 60 years later in Lazarus' life? He died again. But in Jesus' death, he resurrected and would never die again. In Revelation chapter 118, there's this glorious thing that Jesus says about himself, that I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death, he says, which basically means I've been there, I've done that, and I've got the t-shirt. Jesus says, I lived, I died, I rose, and I'm never going to die again. So have a part of that, Christian. Verse 11 says that, likewise, you also take part in that Christian 
reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I love verse 11, and you can probably guess it's because the word reckon is used. You know, anybody that grew up on a cattle ranch and that loves Western movies, I mean, if the word reckon is in the Bible, I'm following this God, okay? And so this word reckon means that we're appropriating the fact. We're considering the fact or counting the fact. It's an accounting word. You know, we're reckoning something into account. We're considering it. So you, Christian, with all of this truth being known, are to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It's here we have this practical application into the Christian life. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. Through faith, we've died with Christ. By faith, we've li- we live with Christ with a new resurrection power. And so how do we walk in that? By reckoning. And I fully give you permission. If you go to Calvary Chapel of Crook County, that every time you're tempted with sin, you can do this. I reckon my old man is dead to sin, okay? I give you permission to do that with a little bit of a country western accent, okay? Guaranteed freedom from sin for the rest of your life. No, but seriously, reckon the old man dead. Verbalize it. Memorize this verse. Claim this promise. It's a spiritual truth that Jesus has won for you. And all you're doing is responding to it in faith. I don't have to sin right now. I'm not going to sin right now because sin doesn't have control over me. It's not my master. Jesus is my master. The old Rory has died to sin. I'm not going to live any longer in it. The old Rory is living with Christ right now. That I could walk in his holiness, in his purity. I reckon the old man dead to sin. And I reckon the new man alive in Christ. To reckon, you can, you know, go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And you can say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Hide that word in your heart, Galatians 2, 20. And in the heat of temptation, I have been crucified with Christ. I reckon the old man dead. Warren Wiersbe says, it's not enough merely to know our new position in Christ. We must, by faith, reckon it to be true in our own individual lives. Reckoning is simply that step of faith that says, what God says about me in the Bible is now true in my life. I am crucified with Christ. Reckoning, Wiersbe continues, is faith in action. Resting on the word of God in spite of circumstances or feelings. God does not tell us to crucify ourselves, but rather to believe that we have been crucified and that the old man has been put to death. Crucifixion is one death you cannot inflict in yourself. You must be crucified by another. Reckoning is that step of faith that believes God's word and acts upon it. So, practical application in victory against sin for the glory of God. 
is to walk in what Jesus says he won for you. To claim what Jesus says he's done for you and he's won for you. And now walk in newness of life. A divine nature, a new self. You're a new creature. You have a new mind, 1 Corinthians 2.16. You've received a new heart, Romans 5.5, that you could love God. You've received a new will, verse 13 says. We'll get to it next week. But reckon. Reckon yourself to be walking in this new life. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit who is in the Christian, we can choose not to allow sin to have control over our members anymore. We can choose that. Alan Redpath used to look himself in the mirror every morning and make an agreement with himself. He used to look in the mirror and he used to say, I will allow you to eat at least three times today if you will follow me to my knees in prayer three times today. He used to make his body subject itself to him. Say, you know what? I reckon this new life in Christ, it's powerful. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in me. And so this practical is laid out for us. And we're going to end here in verse 11 today. And next week we'll pick up in verse 12 where more practical is given to us with an amazing promise found in verse 14. But as Martina McBride says, today is a day of a reckoning. Sorry. I spent a lot of time in a tractor. Today is a day of a reckoning. And as we close in worship, and Heather and Lee, you can come back up. If you're in Christ, you can come to the communion table today as we close in worship. You can grab the elements and take them back with you. And you can declare that unity with Christ. You can de declare his death and his resurrection today through communion. That his body was broken on your account. His blood was shed on your behalf. And as you take those elements into you, you're declaring it. You're making it personal. But as you take communion today as well, and you thank Jesus for his awesome sacrifice that he made, Reckon, consider that there on the cross at Golgotha 2,000 some years ago, when Jesus hung on the tree, your old man was there as well. You've been crucified with Christ. And there in that garden tomb some 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came forth in glorious power, because of what he's done, so too were you there. His resurrection imputed to your account that you could walk in newness of life. As you take communion, you thank Jesus for that. You worship Jesus for that. And you reckon the old man's dead, the old woman is dead. And the new man is alive in glorious life to bring worship and praise and honor and adoration to Jesus.
And if you've never been born again, if you've never been regenerate, you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. Death is your master. And condemnation and judgment in hell is your future. But today by faith, by resting in what Jesus did, you can be born again. And you can have this glorious hope and freedom from sin as well. And you can come to the communion table. Let's worship the Lord for this awesome truth, this unity of Christ, this grace that brings about freedom of sin. Let's worship.